0: Welcome to Reviving Virtue, a podcast where we face the urgent challenges of today's world by exploring the crucial role of uncovering, together, a coherent moral narrative for our time. I'm your host, Jeffrey Anthony, on a quest to tackle liberalism's quandary and pave the way towards a more unified society. Join me on this journey as we delve into ethics, philosophy, and community building, seeking to create a common understanding that fosters human flourishing and harmony. Welcome to Reviving Virtue. Well, here we are. We are now at the last chapter of The Public and Its Problems, the problem of method. Along this journey, we have explored many topics, from the intricate dynamics between private acts and their public consequences to the complexities of the state and government, from the delicate balance between individual freedom and collective virtues to the eclipse of the public's understanding in our modern, fast-paced world. Throughout, Dewey's framework of pragmatism has guided our exploration, Challenging us to confront and reassess our perceptions of truth and knowledge. In this final chapter, The Problem of Method, we turn our attention to how we, as active participants in our societies, might approach problem solving in the public sphere. Dewey doesn't merely present us with the theoretical structure, but emboldens us to consider the role of method in our social and political lives. It's here where the journey we've embarked on synthesizes into a pragmatic approach an approach that emphasizes active experiential learning and reflection in our pursuit of societal betterment. In this episode, we'll dive into Dewey's conception of the scientific method applied to social issues, a process not exclusive to the realms of physics and chemistry, but one that could and should be employed to analyze, understand, and ultimately address the public's problems that surrounds us. We will discuss how Dewey's insistence on a method of intelligence can guide our approach to policy, government, and societal structure, challenging us to always experiment, reflect, and adapt in the face of evolving public needs. And as always, we don't just stop at Dewey's original insights. No, we'll explore the modern relevance of his ideas, applying his methodological approach to our present day challenges, and we'll use a few metaphors in the process. I'm sure you're excited about those. <laughs> This episode isn't merely a conclusion, but a call to action, an invitation to embrace Dewey's vision of a participatory and progressive society, and a prompt for all of us to step up as responsible citizens, always questioning, learning, and contributing to the symphony of our shared public life. So, let's dive in. In this last chapter, The Problem of Method, it begins by acknowledging the challenges that lie ahead in actualizing the democratic public. Here, He compares these challenges to the obstacles science faced a few centuries ago, thereby suggesting that despite the complexity, the path to realization isn't entirely bleak. The essence of Dewey's argument in these initial pages revolves around two key themes. First, the challenge of the public to recognize and identify itself. And second, the method of intellectual inquiry needed to facilitate this recognition. Dewey criticizes the binary understanding of the individual and the social, arguing that these concepts are inherently intertwined and can't be understood in isolation. He posits that anything is individual which operates as a cohesive unit, yet its actions are determined by its relationship with its surroundings. Thus, Dewey encourages us to recognize the inherent relationality of individuals. This has been discussed every chapter of this book their embeddedness within their environments, and the consequences of their actions. Okay, before we go any further, I want to broach a subject or a topic, and that is of functionalism and how it relates to Dewey's analysis of the individual and the public and the state. Functionalism is a sociological framework that paints a picture of society as an intricate clockwork mechanism. You could say, where each gear, each spring, and each part has a role, an interlocked function that ensures smooth and steady progression. But as I've come to realize through the last six episodes, Dewey's theory is more than just a repackaged functionalism. And I'm talking about this functionalism because doing some of my own background research in between episodes here to ensure that what I'm articulating to my audience here is coherent and accurate. I noticed that some people have labeled Dewey as a functionalist, you know, like, oh, he's a functionalist. And what he's saying isn't really too important now because functionalism was like the big thing in the 60s, 50s, late 50s, 60s, and early 70s, and then it went out of fashion. As we learned, culture and all these other aspects are a little more important and that the, the this viewing society as a as mechanical framework or in a mechanical metaphor isn't very helpful. But I see where you can get that idea from Dewey reading him that he's got this functional frame and he does in a way, but it's much more dynamic. So I'm going to read. I'm going to continue reading what I have written here, but this is what spurred me to add this to this episode. So Dewey's functionalism is like some sort of reharmonization or remix, keeping within my musical metaphors here. Dewey's pragmatism extends beyond the societal machine of strict functionalist framework to highlight the needs for adaptability progress, and dynamic change as part of a societal rhythm and harmony. This is where his emphasis on democracy as a, to quote, way of life and the need for active, engaged citizenship comes into play. Now, citizens for Dewey are not just merely cogs in a societal machine. No, they are active problem solvers who can collectively shape and reshape the society in which they live to better address emerging challenges and needs. Dewey introduces a dimension of power dynamics into his framework, something typically absent in standard functionalist models. If you think of power dynamics today, you might automatically go to Foucault this is several decades before Foucault. I don't even think Foucault is alive yet. So anyways, that's maybe another unnecessary tangent. So this approach provides a more dynamic and inclusive framework for analyzing and engaging with social and political realities. It's not just about maintaining balance, but about fostering an environment where construct change can take place. Dewey doesn't merely view the individual as a component in a static societal machine. This is why I think the functionalist label is not fair. Instead, he underlines the dynamic and reciprocal relationship between individuals and their environments, between personal motives and societal influences. This fluid bi-directional interaction challenges a purely functionalist view, pushing us to consider the individual not just as an entity shaped by society, but also an active agent shaping the society in return. Remembering that societies aren't simply functioning organisms, but intricate networks of power relationships, Dewey's theory prompts us to ask, how can we ensure that our societal structures and institutions do not merely function, but function in a manner that promotes fairness, liberty, and collective prosperity? This is the core of Dewey's philosophy, as I interpret it, He challenges us to always be engaged, to be reflective upon our actions and the consequences of those actions, to ask these critical questions, and then to enact the necessary changes when our responses fall short of our vision of an equitable, harmonious society. The whole idea of business as usual, this is how I view a lot of government, especially local government, and a lot of that is not always their fault of the people inside. It's this momentum of the machinery that's in place and the fear of being ground into this machinery if you stick out and try to make any big changes. Dewey's saying that it's our duty to stick our hand up, to stick out if you're in those positions and to challenge this business as usual. And this is uh, my experience working in local government has led to me as I've been thinking about why I even just started this podcast. It was my experience in local government that kind of showed me how this idea that Dewey says is our duty to do, to actually engage actively within our systems and to challenge what's happening and to say, this isn't equitable. And when someone says, but this is how we've always done it, we say, no, but we're not going to do it this way anymore. Problem is, if you only have one person in a big organization that's doing that, they're just going to get ground to a pulp. We got to create the support for that sort of environment to grow we need to nurture that, and we need to create moral narratives that become embedded within our societal milieu, so that is it's the background we can work upon. So that background is there. So when people are in these positions in local government, they can say no, and they won't be ground to a pulp because there is a understanding, a mutual support network there that's woven into the fabric of the society. This is really how I read Dewey, he's he's saying that we need to practice this, right? And that's what virtues are all about, creating practices that reflect our shared vision of the good life. So, moving on with my prepared script. Now that our short detour into the world of functionalism is over, let's bring this back to the topic at hand in the beginning of chapter six of The Publicanist Problems and look at Dewey's deconstruction of the individual versus social dichotomy. It becomes even more significant as we look into this. Dewey, from the very beginning of his book, has been showing us a different lens to view this dichotomy, a lens grounded in relationships, interactions, and consequences, and if I may add, responsibility. I see consequences and responsibility as the same. Now, from the lens of functionalism, Dewey's understanding of the individual may seem familiar, but there's an added layer of complexity. Dewey not only talks about how individuals are influenced by their surroundings, but he also underlines the impact of their actions on their environment. This two way interaction, where the individual influences and is influenced by the system, is a recurring theme in Dewey's work. In this chapter we've explored, Dewey has consistently stressed the importance of understanding the individual within this larger web of societal interaction. His focus on the role of communication in society, the distinction between public and private acts, and his view on the democratic mechanism all exemplify this perspective. Now, this perspective invites us to see beyond the conventional individual versus social dichotomy that is at the heart of our modern conflicts. Rather than positioning these as opposing forces, Dewey sees them as intricately connected, influencing and shaping each other. The individual in Dewey's view is an active participant in the societal machine. Now, this is what we've been discussing, right? You're capable of affecting and experiencing these changes this compels us to view the individual not as an isolated entity, no, but as a dynamic part of the broader system. It invites us to acknowledge and address the power dynamics and consequences within the system. This is why I don't call him a functionalist. So Dewey illustrates his argument using two examples here, which we're going to go over. One of a marriage contract and one of a limited liability joint stock company, because that's what they called it back then. It's just a firm. Let's explore these examples to understand Dewey's perspective better. When people marry, they become part of a union, right? Their roles, rights, responsibilities, and actions within this union are different from when these people were single or from their roles in other associations like a member of a club or a corporation. These changes are due to the new status within this union, right? However, Dewey is cautioning against contrasting an individual as a member of a union to the union itself. The traits and actions of the individual within the union are determined by their union and vice versa. So if we then take Dewey's next example of a corporation, Dewey again emphasizes the collective and integrated nature of social interactions. A corporation is an integrated collective action granting its members rights, duties, and characteristics different from those they possess in other associations. This differentiation might lead to confusion on artificial problems. The corporation and its members, when viewed in their respective roles within the corporation, cannot be set against each other corporation does what its members in their corporate roles can do, and vice versa. Opposition or conflict, according to Dewey, can arise between different groups or between individuals who are part of different groups. Consider a man who is a church member and a businessman. Dewey says, and I quote, a man may be one thing as a church member and another thing as a member of the business community. The difference may be carried as if in watertight compartments or it may become such a division as to entail internal conflict, end of quote. This is the kind of dichotomy that can lead to a division within an individual or even internal conflict if the roles and expectations differ significantly in these two groups. However, the crux of the problem, as Dewey sees it, isn't about individuals versus society. Rather, it lies in adjusting groups and individuals to one another. In his own words, and I quote Dewey again, the genuine problem is that of adjusting groups and individuals to one another. End of quote. Instead of seeking to reconcile abstract ideas of individuals and society, Dewey suggests we should focus on fostering harmony and balance within the multifaceted roles and association each person occupies. I mean, that's, that's, I think this is really needed in today's society, making our individual selves legible within this societal framework, or embedded within, right? So, indeed, Dewey cautions against the abstraction of an individual disassociated from any societal context, as this could lead to a false dichotomy of individual versus society. I believe this libertarians have a big problem with this, right? They don't see themselves embedded within this broader context. They also don't see that whatever rewards they get for their hard work, they don't see that the society is a necessary part of these rewards that they get they see the individual disassociated from this larger web. It's also why I keep harping on libertarians because there's, I feel like there's a large resurgence of libertarianism in the last, I don't know, 10 years, thanks to it being of that ideology infecting the the West Coast, Silicon Valley vibe. I used to live there and be part of it. And I saw it and I would be talking to people in person and they would say these things. And I would just think, how can you think that? Sitting right here right now with all these people around us that are part of this larger corporation we're working for, and all of their inputs are responsible for part of your success. It's not just you. And if it wasn't for these other people, there would be no success that we're even talking about. I also think about sometimes, I was thinking today when I was driving, like the idea of does the individual, if you were the only person on the planet, would you? Would your self exist? Would there be a self that you uh, that would constitute you, because there's no one that could reflect upon you. You, there are no eyes, there are no, there's no other subject. You're the only subject. If you're the only subject, is there a self? Because I see the self as being constituted through others. So I know that was all over the side. So I'll get back to my script here. Uh, we'll back up a little bit. So Dewey cautioned against the abstraction of an individual disassociated from societal context, as this could lead to the false dichotomy of individual versus society. He asserted, to quote. Because an individual can can be disassociated from this, that and the other grouping, since he needed not be married, or be a church member, or a voter, or belong to a club, or scientific organization, there grows up in the mind an image of a residual individual who is not a member of any association at all. Such abstraction, according to Dewey, could create the false problem of reconciling the individual and society thereby diverting attention from the actual issue, that of adjusting individuals and groups to one another. This concern about abstraction echoed a central theme in pragmatic philosophy and a prominent voice from the contemporary era, who we've mentioned almost every episode, Richard Rorty. He has stressed the importance of focusing on our lived material world rather than the abstract philosophical constructs. In his book, Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature, Rorty argued that philosophy should move away from its traditional focus on seeking timeless truths and should instead focus on practical matters of human significance. He stated, to quote, philosophy in its new post-philosophical guise would then be free to take its place as an autonomous discipline alongside the other, now equally autonomous disciplines that have sprung from it. This idea resonates with Dewey's concern that we should direct our intellectual energy towards examining and improving our concrete lived experiences, instead of engaging in hypothetical problems like individualism versus collectivism. I'm going to wrap this segment up. Dewey then points to his overarching theme of method, which is the theme of his final chapter. He criticizes the waste of intellectual energy on abstract debates, which we just said, and individualism and collectivism. Instead, he urges us to concentrate on concrete subject matters. To quote, thought is diverted from the only fruitful question, those of investigation into factual subject matter, and becomes a discussion of concepts. Okay, that's what he's saying when we abstract. We get away from the stuff that really matters. So, by exploring the consequences of a specific distribution of freedoms and authorities, and by determining more desirable outcomes, we could edge closer to achieving the harmonious balance between individuals and the societal context. All right. Dewey emphasizes that individuals' potentialities can often be stifled by the dominance of certain societal associations. In our modern context, the healthcare industry could be seen as one such dominant societal association. This industry, comprising of pharmaceutical companies, insurance providers, and healthcare facilities, holds substantial sway over public health policies and practices. The impacts of this dominance are manifold, affecting the accessibility, affordability, and quality of care of many individuals. So, I'm going to quote Dewey from page 196 in my copy of The Public and Its Problems, to quote, The doctrine of evolution modified this idea of method only superficially, for evolution was itself often understood non-historically. That is, it was assumed that there is a predestined course of fixed stages through which societal development must proceed, under the influence of concepts borrowed from the physical sciences of the time, it was taken for granted that the very possibility of social science stood or fell with the determinations of fixed uniformities. Now, every such logic is fatal to free experimentation and social inquiry. Boom. I just love Dewey. It's amazing. All right, so in understanding the healthcare industry through a Deweyan lens, the dominance of the industry isn't a predetermined evolution, but a product of specific conditions and practices that have become institutionalized over time. To Dewey, This situation calls for careful observation and reflective investigation, not rigid adherence to set methods or laws or business as usual. In light of this, an intelligent Dullian approach to this would first involve a comprehensive and empirical investigation of the current conditions in healthcare, which here in the United States is an absolute disaster. I will note that there is ample work being done in this field here in the United States, and I read a lot of these uh, newsletters and journal articles and and I listen to several podcasts. I have been backing off of them lately because they get me so amped up and so angry. And actually, it's another reason I'm starting this podcast because I all of the empirical evidence is there. But what is missing is the moral narrative. So I'm going to continue with my script here. For example, just one institution working on this problem is a Democracy Collaborative. They're based out of Ohio. But to illustrate this point, one example they provide could be particularly insightful. So it's an article by Dana Brown, She's from the Democracy Collaborative, and it's from an article titled "Healthcare as a Public Service: Redesigning U.S. Healthcare with Health and Equity at the Center." She introduces the concept of the beverage-style health system, exemplified by the Veterans Health Administration (the VHA) in the U.S. and the National Health Service (NHS) in the U.K. Brown challenges us to imagine what healthcare might look like if the profit motive were removed altogether from the provision of care, if healthcare were designed as a public service she suggests, the possibilities for health equity, health system resilience, and reduced costs could be enormous. One of the few bright spots amid the crisis of the pandemic, as noted by Brown, is the often underappreciated VHA. Rather than buckling under the strain of the pandemic, the VHA expanded its services, taking on hundreds of non-veteran patients and providing essential support to other healthcare institutions. The demonstrated flexibility aligns with Dewey's insistence on the importance of constant readjustment in societal systems to meet changing circumstances. The VHA, as Brown discusses, is a beverage-style system where both the payer and provider are public. This structure enables these systems to adopt public interest missions rather than being driven by profit. The VHA's mission, for instance, is centered on caring for the nation's veterans, embodying the ethos of a public service rather than a business. This approach allows the system to focus on serving the needs of individuals and society as a whole, echoing Dewey's emphasis on individuals' potentialities and their participation in a variety of societal associations. However, it is important to note, the VHA, like any large institution, has its shortcomings. These include variations in the availability and accessibility of services, staffing shortages, and infrastructure modernization challenges. Despite these issues, though, Brown emphasizes the overall effectiveness of the VHA in delivering high quality care. This evaluation recognizes Dewey's point that social integrations are always evolving and adjusting to new conditions, and no system can be perfect. The existence of challenges does not negate the value of the system, but rather suggests areas for further investigation and improvement. So, reflecting on Brown's discussion of the VHA as a beverage style system offers us another way to conceptualize healthcare as a public service. The lessons drawn from the VHA's example could help us imagine how a national healthcare service for the United States might operate. This consideration aligns with Dewey's call for public participation in societal associations that deeply affect their lives, which would indeed include healthcare. I mean, who doesn't use healthcare in this country? The shift toward viewing healthcare as a public service also opens up possibilities for achieving health justice. Dewey was deeply concerned about the potential for certain societal associations to dominate and limit individuals' experiences and potentialities. Brown's approach resonates with this concern, seeking to redesign healthcare in a way that promotes equity and maximizes the health and well-being of the population. Now, the notion of healthcare as a public service is not new, but it may require, as Brown suggests in this article, some dusting off in order to fully appreciate its potential. Drawing on Dewey's philosophy, we can begin to envision a healthcare system that better balances the various societal forms involved, strives for health equity, and allows for the full expression of individuals' potentialities. Such a system would not only serve the health needs of the public, but also contribute to a more equitable and vibrant society. American society is heavily influenced by the virtues of individualism and self reliance. I mean, that's drilled into our heads as soon as we pop out of that womb. You know, with, there's an overarching narrative that frames success as a product of personal effort and resilience, right? We've discussed this over several episodes now. While these values can drive innovation and personal growth, they can also lead to a distorted perspective on collective issues such as healthcare. The current healthcare system in the United States is often presented as a marketplace where consumers are expected to shop around for the best services, which is ridiculous. This narrative places the responsibility of health and well-being primarily on the individual, obscuring systemic inequities and challenges that are faced by almost everyone in this country. I see the only way to foster a meaningful conversation about healthcare reform is by shifting our moral narratives to align with a broader set of values that are imbued into the web of our societal milieu. One such value is empathy, the ability to understand and share the feelings of others. Empathy promotes a sense of shared responsibility for the well-being of others and recognizes that our individual health is directly tied to the health of our communities. The narrative of healthcare as a human right, rather than as a commodity, reinforces this empathetic perspective. Now, another value to emphasize is justice, which in this context refers to health equity, the principles that everyone should have a fair opportunity to attain their full health potential regardless of social, economic, and demographic factors. The narrative of healthcare as a public service, as proposed by Dana Brown, and reflected in the VHA and NHS model, is deeply intertwined with the values of justice. It implies that society has a collective responsibility to ensure that healthcare is accessible and affordable for all, rather than treating it as a privilege for those who can afford it. I mean, what sort of society we want to live in where the only people who can get healthcare are those who are rich? And the reason they're rich is because they're exploiting the value that's created by the masses who are then immiserating by creating a for-profit healthcare system, which I call a murder-for-profit healthcare system, right? We have a system that is designed to extract as much wealth as possible in people's most dire moment of need. And then when they can no longer come up with the capital, they're simply cut out. And what does that mean? we as a society have decided that we no longer want them to be part of our community. This is why I call that murder-for-profit healthcare system, because we're intentionally doing this. This is an action we are engaging in. This is the consequence of a for-profit healthcare system. And as Dewey says, we need to understand the consequences of the systems that we build. And we are responsible for the consequences. And We have mountains of empirical data that shows that the for-profit system we have in the United States is one of the most, if not the most inefficient system for Western democracies, and it's barbaric. And we pretend that we are not responsible for the health of our fellow citizens who, through their health and through their interactions in our communities, has provided wealth and health for ourselves. And we just turn our back in their most dire moment of need, and say, oh, you don't have any more capital to to contribute to the profits of this healthcare system, you're done. This is remarkable to me that to challenge the current framing of our healthcare in our system by pointing out the reality, the fact that the system is set up to extract as much wealth as possible. And as soon as the individual is no longer able to contribute any more of their wealth or capital to the system, we will let them die. That is murder for profit. And for shame on us that the current structure of our healthcare system in the United States is structured to murder people in their most dire need if they don't have enough money. This is the country we have. This is what we've built. We've built this. This business as usual is cowardly. We have the creative ability. We have the agency. And we must be courageous enough to stand up and actively change this repressive, barbaric system. How dare we? Back to my prepared remarks. However, changing moral narratives is a complex process that involves challenging deeply ingrained beliefs and attitudes. It's not enough to merely propose new values or narratives. We must also engage in open, thoughtful dialogue about why these changes are necessary and beneficial. Drawing on Dewey's emphasis on education and community engagement, we might foster this dialogue through public education campaigns, community discussions, and political advocacy. So, in order to successfully execute this educational endeavor, however, substantial funding is required. This funding would need to be directed towards developing educational materials and and curriculum training teachers and most importantly supporting teachers to handle these complex discussions and creating and disseminating public education campaigns and facilitating community engagement activities additionally resources should be allocated toward research for continually update our understanding of the healthcare system and reform strategies the long-term benefits of such investment in education would extend beyond healthcare reform by fostering critical thinking empathy and civic engagement education can prepare individuals to tackle other social challenges as well. In essence, a well-funded, comprehensive, and critical educational initiative forms the bedrock of a Deweyan approach to transforming our healthcare system. This approach, in turn, aligns with our broader goal of creating a more equitable and democratic society. In his critique of absolutistic logic, Dewey warns against the tendency to adopt rigid, unyielding ideological frameworks. A significant part of his argument is a direct challenge to Platonic philosophy and his conception of ideal forms. In Platonic philosophy, there are perfect, immutable forms or ideas that exist beyond the observable world. Things in our perceptible reality are seen as imperfect copies of these ideal forms. For instance, a chair, as we know it, is a flawed imitation of the perfect idea or form of a chair. All right, so Plato extends this concept to notions of justice, beauty, and truth. Asserting that there are ideal, unchanging forms of these concepts that our worldly interpretations strive yet fail to emulate, this is just a crazy conception to me. I don't understand how this could take, and how this could survive for so long. This idea, I think, it's ridiculous. But so Dewey also thinks it's ridiculous. <laughs> he takes issue with this Platonic idealism and its influence on our method of thinking and actions in social matters. The adoption of such an absolutistic perspective, he argues promotes a dogmatic approach to understanding the world. Oh, I'm going to edit in here. That's probably why we use it, because it's very convenient for business as usual. Going back to the script, it substitutes genuine inquiry with the uncritical acceptance and application of predefined concepts, principles, and doctrines. See, I already had it in my script. When it comes to social and political discourse, this translates into subscribing to hard and fast doctrines like individualism or collectivism in approaching situations with preconceived notions rather than a willingness to investigate, understand, and adapt. The doctrines, according to Dewey, act like platonic ideals that people strive to implement, often without consideration of the unique context or conditions at hand. This rigid adherence to absolutes hinders the ability to identify concrete correlations of changes and understand the nuanced sequential events that constitute social realities. If you want to live a world like this, you can get a Ph.D. and become an economist. In effect, Dewey calls for an intellectual shift away from absolute ideals and towards a method of thinking that is experimental and flexible. This involves treating concepts and principles and social policies as working hypotheses rather than unquestionable truths, thereby enabling a more pragmatic and adoptable approach to social matters. He echoes this viewpoint in his emphasis on the importance of empirical investigation and community engagement in fields like healthcare reform. Rather than striving to realize a static, predefined ideal of healthcare, Dewey's approach would encourage an ongoing process of evaluation, adjustment, and improvement based on real-world conditions and outcomes. Like here in the United States, healthcare gets more expensive, it gets worse, Uh, hospitals are closing down in rural areas because the profit margins aren't that much. I mean, think about that. In the last like five years, we've had a massive consolidation of hospitals, and hospitals in, in rural parts of the United States just closing down because they can't meet the profit margins that are required by the investors. We just let this happen. And we just say, Oh, well, you know, that's business. That is barbaric. And we are lazy, cowardly, to not just stand up and say we have the ability to change this. We should do this. Where are our morals in this? So now, William James and other pragmatists spoke on the fallacy of absolutistic logic as well. James, in his essay, The Will to Believe, advocates for a similar notion of flexible belief, emphasizing the practical over the absolute. James emphasizes that our beliefs should be guided by their practical effects on our lives rather than on any perceived absolute truth. That's right. This pragmatic approach underlines the idea that beliefs are tools for navigating the world rather than a reflection of an absolute reality. This aligns with Dewey's view on treating concepts, principles, and social policies as working hypotheses. He argues that truth is what works in the, to quote, way of our believing, end quote, and that the final arbiter of truth is what best promotes a satisfying and enriching life. So this perspective views social matters with a sense of adaptability and pragmatism. Of course, the project of this podcast is defining what is an agreed upon definition of a satisfying and enriching life, though. The good life. And this is the hard part, right? So, what is that good life? This is, I'm going to bring some guests on to to talk about this because I'm reading some books on this. So, as we get into the concluding segments of the public and its problems, I want to revisit a central tenet that has underscored our discourse the concept of the good life. As we pivot towards the future discussions, incorporating insights from guest speakers into our evolving dialogue, this notion persistently referenced throughout our conversations will serve as an essential framework. So, it is critical to reiterate that our exploration here on on Reviving Virtue navigates the backdrop of the Enlightenment era, with its focus on individualism and a specific conception of reason. Notably, figures like John Locke and John Stuart Mill have been instrumental in reshaping our societal lens. They champion the preeminence of individual rights and freedoms, embedding the individual not just as an autonomous entity, but as the primary fulcrum around which society orbits. However, the ascendancy of the individual displaced the community from the heart of social theory. Enlightenment thought, in sharp contrast to prior Aristotelian or traditional communal societies, forwarded a vision of society as a conglomeration of self-determining individuals. This perspective conceived society as an aggregate of autonomous individuals, each operating primarily on their personal rationality. It's like subjective rationality. That's what that is. So this shift to an atomized societal views facilitated the disembedding of the individual from the community, engendering a fragmented view of society, obscuring the societal impact of individual actions, responsibilities, consequences, and complicating our ability to articulate a shared vision of the good life. Now, this is to grapple with this quandary so far, we've touched upon some philosophers such as Charles Taylor and Alastair McIntyre. Taylor's concept of the buffered self, which challenges the atomistic individualism born out of the Enlightenment thinking, he painted a picture of the individual detached from their moral, emotional, and spiritual dimensions. This whole idea of disembed is a big theme of his book, The Sources of the Self. And MacIntyre's tradition-based reasoning, it's like a tradition-based rationality. I'm reading a book on that right now, on his MacIntyre's Conception, and and this is one of the authors I'm going to try to invite on. So not MacIntyre, but this other author. MacIntyre's tradition-based reasoning offers a counterpoint contending that our understanding of moral virtues and the good life is deeply embedded within our cultural and historical traditions. Now, Taylor and MacIntyre advocate for a return to a more integrated self one that acknowledges and values its communal roots and shared moral understandings, those narratives. Today's challenge lies in reconciling the vestiges of Enlightenment thinking with these holistic perspectives. In doing so, we may yet articulate a shared vision of the good life, one that does justice to our collective human complexity and begins to expand our scope of potential paths forward. Giving us room to negotiate and navigate back to a shared vision of the good life so that we can in fact utilize thinking that is experimental and flexible to deal with unique contingent circumstances of our time. This is sometimes called being creative. It's a delicate balancing act that requires us to respect individual autonomy while fostering a spirit of communal responsibility. I mean, we can only do this with moral narratives. People need to understand this. It has to be part of them. You can't just tell them. So then we're going to get back into John Dewey's conception of intelligence. So In John Dewey's critical examination of intelligence as a personal attainment, he invites us to see beyond the individualistic and the somewhat myopic perspective often encapsulated in the modern notion of human capital. Dewey prompts us to recognize that our intelligence, abilities, and potential cannot be adequately understood or nurtured when they're viewed in isolation from our broader societal context. This is particularly pertinent in our current era, which is often dominated by a rather reductive view of education and learning, one that narrowly equates them to economic productivity and personal financial gain. This is the human capital. So, this prevailing perspective, although seemingly empowering, can inadvertently lead to an oversimplification of the wholeness of a human being. It risks eclipsing the myriad of other dimensions that constitute our humanity, our capacity for empathy, our need for belonging, our desire for meaning, our creative and artistic impulses, and our shared responsibilities towards our community's environment. By fixating on individual wealth and economic output as the primary indicators of value, we risk losing sight of these essential aspects of our human experience. They're qualitative, not quantitative. Dewey's critique calls for a reorientation towards a more holistic understanding of intelligence and learning, one that acknowledges and values our interconnectedness and our shared responsibility for societal well-being. It invites us to embrace an education that nurtures not just our individual human capital, but our collective human potential. Such a perspective aligns with the virtues-based approach that we have been exploring throughout this podcast, reinforcing the idea that our collective pursuit of the good life involves fostering a broader set of capabilities and qualities that enrich both our individual lives and our shared societal existence. Can we do this? Can we get ourselves extricated from this quantitative world, this quantitative mindset, this quantitative societal structure that we have built where everything is commodified, where everything is, how efficient is that? How much money can you make from investing in this education versus this education? Why should we have a society that values your ability to create a company, to make an app, to extract wealth, through delivery apps from communities all across the country, rather than that's valued more than someone who decides to study how to write and become a writer, that can articulate our unique experiences in the world that touches us, that makes us grow as people and to feel connected to others is currently in our country. We value the person that creates the app that extracts wealth from societies around the country, that then of course leads to degradation and societal harms in those cities. We say the person who creates that world is better than the person who creates the book or the poem or the song or the movie or whatever that allows us to understand ourselves and each other more deeply and richly. That person is looked down upon. Their human capital is valued down here, where the human capital, the person who creates an app that takes wealth away from communities and makes communities worse off, their human capital is way up there. They're considered great people. That's the society we have right now it's crazy. So we're at the end of the public and its problems. We're here. And this closing passage from Dewey serves as a poignant reminder that we, as a society, are intrinsically interconnected. Dewey stresses the importance of restoring local communal life and asserts that without it, the public cannot adequately resolve its problems or fully identify itself. This concept is more relevant today than ever before. With increasing urbanization and technological advancements leading to both physical and ideological separations within our own communities. Sometimes I walk out my door and I don't think I'm connected at all to the, the person, my neighbor. Sometimes I walk out my door and, my, and I look over at my neighbor. I have a, no connection with that neighbor. They live in this little atomized world. They, they can plug into all these other things that have nothing to do with our community here where I live in Tucson. I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago. We could have absolutely nothing in common, even though we live feet away. We live in the same town on the same street, but we have almost nothing in common. I don't know this. We have new neighbors now. I, I'm not talking about people who are listening to this who are my neighbors. I, I don't want you to think I'm talking about you. We, we, me and my wife, we, we intentionally try to integrate into our communities here. And uh, my wife is the president of the, of the neighborhood association here, and we, we try to be part of that. But I was just having this thought that we have these new neighbors and I haven't seen them yet. And and I was thinking like, we li- like what I just said. And it's crazy because I feel like 40 years ago, shortly after I was born, <laughs> we would all watch the same TV shows. We'd all have roughly the same schooling. All, all these things have been broken and broken apart in this atomized world. And I actually, this conflicts with my own understanding of who of how I view the world and what I want the world to be I want there to be choices I want there to be different TV shows to watch I want there but I wonder is what's the trade-off here is this trade-off the more atomistic society or can we have all these choices and still keep this this, this web, this inter, this, this idea of bringing our communities back together. Is there a way to bring this interconnectedness back into our moral narratives while we still have all these choices? I think we can, but I'm doing this podcast to figure this out in real time with you. So I'm talking through it with you real time. So maybe when people listen to this five years from now, maybe I'm in a different place then and I'm, maybe I, I've found that nugget, but right now I don't know it. And this is why I'm just talking about it out loud here. This is well, as I'm talking through this, I'm I'm becoming better at being able to articulate my thoughts, both verbally and internally. So let's get back to the end of my script and close this last episode. So Dewey sees a future where territorial states and political boundaries persist, but they no longer isolate or divide us into factions characterized by jealousy, fear, suspicion, and hostility. He speaks of a society where competition is not solely based on the acquisition of material goods but on the enrichment of local experiences with appreciatively enjoyed intellectual and artistic wealth. That's the world I would love to live in. You know, So Dewey would also emphasize the critical role of face-to-face relationships and direct dialogue in fostering a true public. He suggests that the richness and nuance of spoken conversation can't be matched by the written word, highlighting the importance of personal interaction and shaping our communal consciousness. This gets back to my idea I mentioned two episodes ago, I believe, where I said, if I was the mayor of Tucson, I would ban all drive-throughs. And the idea being there is not that I'm some authoritarian person, but I would be authoritarian if I did that. But my idea behind that is that this would force us to get out of our cars and to sit down in community. We'd be we don't even have to talk to each other, but just sitting down in a coffee shop together, sitting down to eat your fast food hamburger, whatever. I was just listening to a podcast today, the New York Times podcast. And they were interviewing a researcher at Harvard, and he showed in his research that they, he could find the spread of Starbucks increased the number of patents in those zip codes. Why? Because they figured out that all these competing firms, or not necessarily competing, but they could be, just be in the same market or different markets, they would have a place to meet a Starbucks. So they would go and meet at the Starbucks and talk about their ideas. And then new inventions were made from these places. He could map it across the country. And this is what I'm talking about. Like we have these fast foods. Now we have fast food with dual lanes so we can get more people in there faster. This is a cost though. This is having a big cost on our society. We see this convenience. I see it as narrowing the, the scope of our potentiality. So when I say I want to ban all the drive throughs my idea is I want to expand the richness of our culture by having these unanticipated meetings that happen, because that's where the magic happens. That's where the awe happens. It doesn't happen when we're sitting in our car, listening to my podcast, waiting to get some fast food. But in all seriousness, we need to find ways to bring us together in person and not on the streets when we're protesting. It'd be better for us to avoid those conflicts by having more Unanticipated meetings. So I'm I'm all for I'll vote for anyone who says I'm gonna get rid of drive-throughs. You have my vote and you have all of my donations. So this concept resonates particularly today as we grapple with an increased partisan society in the United States, where common language and shared understandings seem to vanish. The chasm of ideological differences are widening, making civil discourse and problem solving exceedingly difficult. Technological advancements, while meant to connect us, appear to have exasperated these divides, right? algorithms on social media platforms reinforce existing beliefs in echo chambers, often limiting exposure to differing viewpoints and fueling divisiveness, right? Because if we get that other viewpoint, we can just click off. And that's and the thing is, that's not the profit motive for the firm that's delivering you that content. They don't want you to click off. No, 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 no. So they'll just keep giving you the same stuff, reinforcing it. So reflecting on Dewey's words for, from almost a century ago, it becomes evident how crucial it is to reestablish local communal life, fostering dialogue and create shared understandings. These challenges persist and arguably are more complex. In our digital age, where communication has been transformed and often reduced to snippets of thought without nuance or depth. This bumper sticker culture is what we have, right? In this era characterized by partisanship and the information overload, Dewey emphasizes on shared community knowledge and its role in reinforcing personal understanding and judgment he implores us to value the diverse viewpoints within our communities and emphasizes the importance of engaging in more face-to-face dialogue. Get rid of those drive-thrus. In the midst of the overwhelming flood of digital information and increasingly polarized discourse, there is a need for us to actively foster environments for face-to-face interaction. Spaces where dialogue is rooted not in animosity and misunderstanding, but in empathy and the pursuit of shared understanding. Now, Richard Rorty, whom we've mentioned a few times and also in this podcast earlier, provides a complementary perspective with his conceptualization of final vocabularies. I just love his conception of final vocabularies. It's from his book, Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity. I cannot recommend this book enough. It's not very long. I don't think it's particularly uh, hard to read when it comes to philosophy books. It's a spectrum here. I, I read it and I think I understood most of it. You, know, you read some of these philosophy books and you're like, I, I don't, the last 100 words, I, I understand four of them. I have no idea what you're talking about. And, and sometimes that's fun. Sometimes I'm into that. But, you know, with, with Rorty's book, Continue to See Irony and Solidarity, that is a book you can understand. If you're listening to this podcast and you're still listening you and haven't, you haven't jumped by now, you can understand it. Rorty posits that a final vocabulary is a set of words which it is believed a person can use to justify his beliefs and actions to others. To have doubts about one's final vocabulary is to risk losing the ability to justify one's belief or actions to oneself. The risk is incurred by anyone who treats the human situation as contingent. These final vocabularies are not fixed, but are subject to change and expansion and require intentional construction and reflection, effectively employing a doing conception of intelligence. This perspective pushes us towards a more inclusive, empathetic, and understanding society, urging us to recognize the potential of expanding our vocabularies and, in turn, our understanding of others. This is what I love about this concept. This is our responsibility, to acknowledge our agency, our limitless ability for cultivating our creative talents, and our intent to shape our own reality, a reality that comprises the vocabularies necessary for our time, our needs, our aspirations. We are not bound by theoretical chains inherited from platonic forms. We must courageously persist, not in spite of universals, but because of the absence of any such notion of limits." all limits are self-imposed. In the context of Dewey's call for a richer local communal life, Rorty's view encourages us to build narratives that are open, encompassing, and capable of growing in response to our shared experience. By fostering environments conducive to direct empathetic dialogue, we can collectively expand our final vocabularies, building a more cohesive society from the roots of our local communities upwards. His vision, challenges us to create a society that is not only alive and flexible, but also stable, responsive, and enriching. An ideal that is not only fully attainable, but more necessary than ever in our increasingly divided society. So here we are. We're at the end of episode six, and that means we're at the end of John Dewey's book, The Public and Its Problems. This has been a remarkable journey for me, and hopefully for you too, the listener. While looking at where to go from here, I've decided to do one more episode on Dewey related to morals, and we'll review a chapter from his book, Ethics, and the chapter is called The Place of Moral Reason in the Moral Life and Moral Knowledge. I read this book about six months ago, and I got it in the John Dewey The Middle Works, volume five. I got this book for $5 on uh, eBay. It was never opened. Amazing. Dewey has a way of explaining ethics and morals and incorporating all the different views that this really resonates with me. And so I'm excited to share that one chapter with you. And The chapter we will be focusing on is the central part of ethics. In it, Dewey discusses the nature of moral reason and its role in the moral life. He argues that moral reason is not a separate faculty of the mind, but is rather a way of using our intelligence to solve problems and make decisions. It is that focus on intelligence that drove me to add an episode on this, because as I produced these episodes and listening to them, I realized that Dewey's conception of intelligence is very important and also very nuanced, rich, and multifaceted. And it should have an entire episode dedicated to its explication after that i'm gonna have some guests come on i hope i'm gonna start reaching out to some people i'm reading some other books while i've been doing this and depending on scheduling and stuff i also have uh, a chapter from a charles Taylor book and a chapter from an alistair mcintyre book i'm going to go over and so until then let's each do our part to nurture our societal garden fostering growth of shared symbols meanings and virtues and moral narratives that resonate with our time and aspirations. All transcripts are available on Patreon for the $3 a month Moral Explorer tier. If you upgrade to the $5 a month Ethical Pioneer tier, you can listen to the podcast early and receive a private RSS feed. I usually finish each episode by Thursday or Friday, giving you four to five days of early access. So thank you, and we'll see you next week. Be well and virtuous in your ways.